in the preface to that novel, Mehmet Rauf talks about like how everyone talks about politics and he wants to write a novel that focuses on the center of the world, which is vagina. Mehmet Rauf was the author of one of the best-known erotic novels of the early 20th century to be written in Ottoman Turkish, Zambak, The Story of a Lily. Creatively adapted from a French original that had been written by a female author, Rauf's work is an example of how Ottoman men translated and imagined erotic life in the tumultuous years between 1908 and about 1925. After 1908's Young Turk Revolution, Ottoman erotic fiction became a space to question the meaning of freedom and the power relations embedded in fantasy and sex. But while many early erotic novels were published under false names and even censored, our guest Borju Karahan argues that this genre, the one that placed the vagina at the center of the world, was not always about transgression. Many novels ends at the Vidal Nights. Submission to authority will bring you sexual satisfaction. Other texts, however, pushed at the boundaries of erotica's patriarchal and heteronormative inclinations. Male sexual performance, the size of male genital organ, is, is a common subject in these novels. Like, women talk about these things, they criticize men on their performance, they criticize men on the, their, their size of penises. It's, it's very common and normal in these stories, and nobody judges these women. In this episode, we explore the world of erotic fiction in Ottoman and early Republican history and the fantasy life of a different time and place. I mean, there's also the question of what is erotic, what's pornographic, right? These texts are not pornographic at all. Welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast today Borju Karahan, who is a lecturer in Ottoman and Turkish literature at Stanford University. And the subject of our discussion today will be on the theme of women in Ottoman erotic novels in the second constitutional period. So Borju, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. So today, uh, I hope it's going to be a fun conversation Hopefully. about the genre of the erotic novel in Ottoman Turkish. And we're particularly going to be talking about the second constitutional period. So I thought you could just um, perhaps begin by telling our readers, you know, sort of what characterizes this period, when are we in time, um, and what's happening broadly in, uh, in, in the Ottoman Empire. So the second constitution was in 1908, uh, so the very early 20th century, and coming out of, let's say, strict comedian censorship, we see a stunning number of new publications like periodicals, journals, newspapers after 1908. And with these publications came along a new kind of genre for Ottoman literature, uh, erotic fiction. But of course, we have to clarify that we're talking about specifically print culture because like erotic fiction has a long history in Ottoman literature. But in print culture, it started after 1908. And Many novels with suggestive titles like One Minute Virginity or The Pregnancy of a Virgin or Through the Keyhole or things like that, like very suggestive titles, novels that 
circle around the idea of sexuality, not maybe sexuality itself, um, where, with suggestive content became to be published uh, after 1908. But if I were to take uh, a pinpoint, a specific date for the start of this, I would say 1910, the publication of Mehmet Rowe's Birzambın Hikayesi, the story of a lily, which was published actually anonymously in 1910. So we're going to talk quite a bit about this fascinating novel today, The Story of a Lily uh, from 1910. Um, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you, you had mentioned that, you know, this is a new genre for print culture, but that there's actually a much longer history of erotic fiction and erotic literature in Ottoman Turkish. In manuscripts. Yeah. So perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about about that and sort of how this new genre, you know, sort of interacts with that with that older tradition. Well, um, you actually had a podcast on this with Jamil Irwin Chick. We do. We can direct our, <laughs> our listeners to... And you, you guys, Irwin um, Chick really nicely talked about, uh, illuminated that um, era. And they were, those texts, if I were to compare them with the Second Constitutional Era novels, they're uh, bolder. And there's no suggestion it's out all out there. But compared to them, the constitutional era novels are way vague <laughs> than uh, the manuscripts. And um, there are major differences. There's heteronormativity becomes the norm, actually, in the novels. We, can't, we don't talk about uh, boy loving. There's no homosexual love, no such thing. Everything becomes more westernized in in terms of content as well. Mm. So we're talking about a major reshaping of, of the genre then. So it becomes less explicit and more about innuendo or suggestion. Um, and it becomes more oriented around heterosexual love as opposed to an earlier genre that had been very open to, to same-sex sexuality um, in texts. Correct. Um, in terms of um, explicitness, I think, again, uh, the story of a lily becomes like a norm because it was when it was published anonymously, but everyone in the literary circles, they knew that it was written by Mahmetrov, uh, a prominent writer of Sarvet uh, Finun group. And the novel is beautifully written. It's really well written. Uh, it's a nice novel. And the first part of it is uses all the suggestive language that you expect from a Western-style erotic fiction that... Uh, he uses a lot of metaphors and similes using uh, exotic flower names for women genitalia, as you would expect from a decadent novel or a uh, secular novel. But towards the end, it becomes very vulgar and very explicit in the definition of the sexual act and with the vocabulary that he uses. And because of this, I think it was the first and only novel of its sort to be banned and taken out of circulation at that time. With this, it set an example for the uh, up-and-coming writers of erotica, we might say, that they use a more um, elusive language. So it seems like the language was very important. But that same language was not an issue in manuscript culture because there was no censorship, no publishing. Right. So with print culture, we also have the kind of introduction of a new regime of censorship. Um, and, you know, it's telling that the, the novel that, that we want to discuss today or one of them, The Story of a Lily from 1910, is written anonymously, um, even though everybody, as you say, knows who wrote it. Yes, and then, uh, but it, um, this rumor that it was written by Mahmoud Rauf was published in, I think, Karagos, 
And he wrote a response to this rumor, like denying all the allegations that he wrote a novel like this in Sadai Millet. But once he was taken to court, he admitted that he he took ownership of the novel, saying it was Talif and Tarjma, that is, he partially translated and partially wrote the novel. And as a result, he was discharged from the army. He was a, a lieutenant in Ottoman Navy at the time, and he was sentenced to eight months in prison. So maybe what we can understand from this story is that the writing of erotic novels was by no means a kind of well-accepted literary practice in this time, that there were serious consequences for him uh, once he was outed as the author of this text. I don't know if as a civil person he would have faced the same consequences, but as an officer of the army he did. So we have a sort of sense of, of these, these, this genre is sitting on kind of the edges of what was considered acceptable for Ottoman literary culture. Yes. So maybe you could just tell us actually so a little bit about the, the novel. I mean, so the novel is called Story of a Lily. And very tellingly, as you mentioned, he, Mehmet Rauf notes that he partially translated and partially wrote it. So what's, what's the story about this book? So it took me a while to figure out what novel he translated Zambak from, and it turns out that he translated it from um, Marquise Manero Decto, a French, um, late 19th century French novelist who wrote three erotic novels, and this was her last one. In the novel, in the Turkish version, in the novel, uh, our anonymous male narrator, he meets Najiye, uh, an attractive woman, and follows her carriage to her apartment, and uh, sends her letters, and as a response, after, after sending many letters, he gets a response saying that she hates men, and that's that, like we don't know why she hates men or anything. Um, heartbroken and frustrated, he visits a friend where he, uh, he finds uh, Zambak, an orphan, a distant relative of this friend who tells him she is not being treated well at that house, kind of like a damsel in distress. So our narrator saves her, like takes her under his protection, takes her to her his own house and teaches her everything about sex. So it's kind of like a very, um, the primitive version of pornographic or erotic text where the inexperienced one learns everything about sex from the experienced one. But through these conversations, uh, our narrator learns that Najie is actually romantically and sexually interested in Zambak. So uh, a rendezvous is set up where uh, Zambak would invite Najie and they would um, engage in a sexual intercourse where our narrator would be hidden in a closet watching them, voyeurism here, and, uh, and then join in. So that happens uh, while Najie and Zambak are making love. Our narrator switches places with Zambak unbeknownst to Najie and in the end, kind of force, he forces himself sexually on Najie, which would seem like a rape, but of course Najie likes it very much as a male fantasy, because we're reading a male fantasy, and she appreciates the power of men. Right. So we can perhaps see the appeal of this story, <laughs> as you say, as a kind of male fantasy about um, sort of interrupting same-sex, literally interrupting same-sex practices among women and replacing them with, you know, the the, the male figure. Yes. Um, what, how, how did Mehmet Rauf transform the novel through his translation? I mean, how, how close is this to the original French uh, novel that was, in fact, written by a woman? So everything up to that he learns that this other woman who hates men 
uh, is interested in the young girl. Everything is the same up to that point. But then uh, in the French novel, they set up, it's very egalitarian that they share the young girl. She becomes lovers for both. But then the young girl in the original novel, she wants to become an actress and she wants to take acting classes. And they found like the most uh, popular actress of the time who was notoriously a lesbian. But they thought they would lose the young girl to the, the, to the actress. So in the original novel, Odette, who's Najee in the original novel, Odette starts a relationship with the actress beforehand to ensure that the actress will not actually make advances at Zambak in the French novel. So it becomes like a two separate couples, but they actually share Zambak in the end. And there's much more room for female same-sex practices to kind of be ongoing even once the male figure enters the scene. Oh, the male figure is very effeminate in the original novel. Like, um, Violet uh, deflowers herself on him without him being instrumental, almost. Or let's say the actress has a dildo, like an artificial, of course, the decadent idea to value artificial over the natural mm. one. And that, that dildo is named after a woman. So there are all these themes that empowering women and just diminishing the role of men to almost nothing in sex. And then in the in the in the translated version, this is all kind of transformed into the celebration of male sexual power. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned that this novel, Story of a Lily, was actually banned shortly after its publication, and Mehmed Rauf himself was discharged from the army and sent to, sentenced to eight months in jail. And yet, it seems that the novel continued to have a reception. Yes, it was banned. Uh, the Story of a Lily was banned, but let me tell you, it was published twice already, and after it was taken out of circulation, it was so popular, we know that, that uh, the publishers hired people to handwrite copies of the novel and they were renting them overnight from 10 to 20 crush. Ali Birinji tells us about this. It's also really interesting that we learned from Yakub Kadri's memoirs that Bismi Hanum, um, a wealthy merchant's, a merchant's uh, daughter in Izmir, she reads this novel and she proposes to Mahmetrov in a letter after reading this novel and actually becomes the second wife of Mahmetrov. <laughs> so there's a there's a complicated space of fantasy going on here, it seems like. <laughs> and um, yeah, dif- success mm-hmm. on different levels, kind of. We also know that an Iranian, I think, kind of like an entrepreneur who was impressed by the success of this novel, had a novel written but we don't know by who who wrote the novel or we don't know anything specific about this but it goes around in like histories as a rumor that he ordered a novel called Kaimaktabu like plate of cream um, a kind of in the style of Zambak's uh, the vulgar side and he of course, he had them printed, but not sell them in Istanbul, but, but put them on his horse or something and apparently like sold them in Antolia. So the success of Story of a Lily and Mehmet Raouf, uh, despite his 
Dailing um, led to a kind of fluorescence, shall we say, in the genre of Ottoman print erotica. But not everybody maybe agreed with Mehmet Raouf in terms of his gender politics um, or his sort of masculinist fantasy life. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the novels that followed and, and how they sort of agreed or disagreed with the story that Mehmet Raouf was telling about sexuality. I can say that there, I want to group what came after Zambak in two. A big junk of these novels um, were very moralistic and punitive on its female characters. But then I want to keep aside um, a series that came late into uh, the field in like uh, 1920s, early 1920s, Bimbir Buse series, like a thousand, thousand and one kisses series, the second one, I'll talk about it later. Um, but they they kind of depict female characters in this erotic context completely differently than the rest of them. So if we come back to the moralistic ones, there were many novels with suggestive titles. Like I can talk about one, uh, for example. It, it's called Haremasının Muashakası, or like Zifaf Gecesi Haremasının Muashakası, The Lovemaking of a Eunuch, in which uh, a, reti- a retired eunuch is um, wants to settle down and have his own family, and he's looking for a young, suitable woman. It becomes really hard because young women in the in the circle that he's looking for one are kind of hesitant because they're curious how it's going to play out in the bedroom. So they have their own like sexual questions and about their sexual satisfaction, which is something very new. And he's well off. He's financially well off, so it's not an issue. And Finally, the rumor goes that the eunuch has a dildo. This becomes an issue again among the young women, and one of them, Enwaye, she is intrigued by the idea of the dildo, and also intrigued by the possibility of its size. She hears it's a big one, and then it can outperform a natural one. Again, a really decadent idea in a very non-decadent context here. She agrees to marry him, so there's all this tension, there's all this waiting and curiosity, and it, it starts with the title, like Love Making of a Eunuch. It's very, uh, it's very... Um, Contradictory in yes. a sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And comes the wedding night, the moment that everyone is waiting for. The eunuch goes into the bathroom to put on the dildo, and then he doesn't come out. So in my, she's waiting, she's waiting, she doesn't come out, and she goes into the bathroom to check on him, where she finds him lying on the ground dead, because when he opens the box, apparently there was a snake hidden in the box, and he, <laughs> the snake <laughs> stung him on his cries, so he died. And seeing this, like, shocked to see her new husband on the floor dead, and that all this anticipation is going nowhere, she she goes crazy, and Maya goes crazy. Like we can say she goes crazy out of, I, I would like to say uh, sexual frustration. And so not only she's punished in this novel, if you look at this at the end, she's punished because she, like, she values this artificial male organ mm-hmm. over a natural one. And then the eunuch, poor eunuch, is punished because he dares to fake male sexual power, Mm -hmm. something that he doesn't have. And then the readers, who are intrigued by the title and waiting for this moment, we are also punished. And instead of uh, reading about a lovemaking of a eunuch, we read about a tragedy in the end. 
So there's something really um, rich about this in the sense that you have a literary space in which women are talking explicitly about desire, um, about dildos, about, you know, um, sort of explaining their own curiosities and interests around sex. But then, as you say, in the end, they're punished. Nobody gets what they want. Um, and it, in, in part because I think what you're suggesting is that there's a there's a question about what happens when you're willing to substitute for real masculinity, right? With the use of the dildo, the eunuch, and that this is actually what brings kind of death and destruction down on everybody's head. Yes, um, it's really tragic. But there are many novels like this that, let's say um, another popular one, Zifaf Hatras, uh, Memory of a Wedding Night. It's these, oh, Sorry, the, the first one was published in 1913, I think, and this one is 1914, so very mm -hmm. close to each other. This one actually was not published anonymously. It was published was by Akagundus, like written by Akagundus, a well-known writer. And in this one, we have a female character, main character, uh, known as Little Miss Kuchukanum. Uh, the novel starts when she's reading the newspapers. The Constitution, the Second Constitution, is proclaimed, and everyone is writing about Hurriet, Hurriet, uh, freedom, freedom in these newspapers. And she, as a young woman, a young Ottoman woman, interprets that this idea of freedom. Okay, I can do whatever I want now because she's uh, she's almost in a set up marriage. She's set up to marry someone that her father wants. And she interprets this, that I can get out of this because there's freedom in this country now. So she goes and tells her father about this. Now there's freedom, like I can marry whoever I want, and the father does not buy this. And she is, now she resorts to these columnists who were writing about Hurriyet in their columns. So she writes to Ahmed Rasim, a real character, a real writer in Ottoman late 19th, early 20th century. And she also writes to Ruzat Tefik, a member of uh, Committee of Union and Progress. And although they, in their speeches and in the columns, they talk about Hurriyet so much, in their responses to her, the little miss, in their letters, they never use the word freedom. Mm. So they advise her, or they yes, there's... Uh, uh, yes, there's constitution and everything, but you still should submit your it father's... It doesn't mean you can marry who you want. Nope. <laughs> you should submit your father's wishes, and they say maybe it will surprise you. Hmm. So she does that, like, out of desperation. She has nowhere to go. She accepts that, and she gets married. And at the wedding night, again, you see, like, many novels ends at the wedding nights. As the readers were, again, like, left out of the bedroom door, we can't go in. So that's how far the erotic goes mm -hmm. in those novels. But we hear the moans and sighs from Little Miss and saying, my lion, my this, my that. And we learn that actually she was pleasantly surprised. Right. So submission to authority, submission to your father will bring you sexual satisfaction. That's, I mean, that's the kind of converse of the story we just heard where, you know, the, the woman um, tries to sort of subvert classic masculinity and, you know, marry a eunuch and, and use a dildo. And, 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 you know, the ending is, is not good for anybody. Whereas in this novel, what you're describing is that, you know, the, the willingness of, of the female character to accept this kind of limited definition of hurriyet or freedom actually brings conjugal sexual pleasure behind a closed door so it's the kind of construction of this you know maybe a private sexual sphere that is acceptable within you know within the bounds of the 
of the male public as sort of um, as pleasurable for women. I mean, yes, I mean, this is also like this time we have a lot of women's magazines talking about like women's emancipation, like freedom in marriage. And so like maybe it was written as a response to mm-hmm. these. So if you want, if you go out clamoring about freedom, you have to give up your sexual pleasure that yeah, that's only comes you. in your arranged <laughs> marriage. Interesting. Like men define the limits of mm-hmm. freedom. And what you're actually showing here is that erotica, which maybe we would assume to be kind of a, a transgressive uh, genre, is actually deeply conservative in that a certain way. Moralistic and mm-hmm. punitive in this case. It mm-hmm. punishes everyone who goes out of the men's ways. Right. But we have to keep aside um, this Thousand and One Kisses right. series from all of this. There were two series with the same title, quite confusing, but they <laughs> never overlap. Like one of them was published with um, known writers like Mahmoud Rauf, uh, Halit Zia, uh, Selami Enes. And then there was the second one, which was published um, anonymously or with pseudonyms like Kiraz. Burgu or like very made up names. Um, these series, though, they are surprisingly liberal, and uh, they were published with the subtitle "En Shan En Hikayeler," so the the most saucy and most joyful stories. Um, in these n- little novellas or stories, the women are very liberal they were they're very free they are urban they live in istanbul we see that now they moved out of mansions or houses they live in apartments in beolo they dress up very in a westernized manner they everything about them is westernized um and they in these novels adultery premarital sex are very common and are not something condemned or punished So, and these are from the early 1920s, is that right? Yes, early 20s, the first part of 1920s. So do you think you can you can trace a kind of shift between the early second constitutional period, so 1910, 1913, 1914, and the beginning of the 1920s um, in terms of attitudes, at least among literary circles, towards, let's call it women's sexual agency or, or, you know, female sexual freedom? There are other individually published novels, like in late 1910s but we never see a shift between like in terms of how they depict female characters i'm pretty sure this thousand and one kisses series the second one um are translations or adaptations from french Mm. um, Mm -hmm. fiction or french novellas but it shouldn't mean anything because Zambak was also a French translation, but again, in, in the end, the writer tied it back to maybe the early Tanzimat novels where they polarize female characters as the femme fatale and the, in Candioti's terms, like tame sex slaves. But these ones, although they might probably, their uh, adaptations or translations, the narrators the writers and the narrators are not judgmental against their female characters. If they judge anyone, they judge the possible judgmental readers, hmm. but not the female characters. For example, like a discussion of uh, male sexual performance, the size of 
male genital organ is is a common subject in these novels. Like women talk about these things, they criticize men on their performance, they criticize men on the, their their size of penises, and it's it's very common and normal in these stories. And nobody judges these women. And so I'm curious, I mean, you said that the these novellas are written under pseudonyms, right, under fake names. Um, do we have any idea sort of who are the, the translators or writers of these and also who are the readers? No. Oh, the readers. Um, it's Who reads these things is always a very complicated question. We don't know who read them. But we know that this one was a very popular one because if you if we for us, I guess the indication is that if they're easily accessible now, like if you can find copies, if you can read them easily, that they were popular, they made many copies. Whereas like first, uh, the first thousand and one kisses, which are more, uh, let's say, proper stories and compared to these ones, they're really hard. They're much harder to mm -hmm. find than mm -hmm. the second one. So there's at least some suggestion that these were quite popular um, in their time, yes. even though they didn't conform to the kind of moralizing, punitive patterns of the earlier parts of the genre, such, such as Mehmet Raouf's novel. Yes, but also we have to keep in mind that these were like 19, early 1920s. It's a very chaotic time. So we don't know who read what, how it was distributed, like, and there was um, kind of a gap in authority, let's say, who would be overseeing right. the censorship. Because this is right or, after yeah. World War One and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Yes. So they, they, these kind of texts were published, let's say, freely until 1930s when the republic was settled, and then they passed the law about publication and what should be in those publications. So, yeah. so until 1930s, we know that they were published freely, but in 1930, after the Republic, a couple of years after the Republic has settled down, they passed a law about publication. And until then, everyone was kind of free to publish these kind of novels. And again, um, we don't know who read them. Right. But at least in the case of Mehmet Raouf's novel, the one we started with, we do have the indication that the woman who became his second wife um, read, yes. read, read a novel, which suggests that when there were women among the, the readership. That is very interesting because in the preface to that novel, Mehmet Raouf, first of all, he talks about like how the political environment um, parades all the publications that everyone talks about politics that now he's going he wants to write a novel very entertaining and that focuses on the center of the world which is vagina basically he says and an idea kind of like that echoes in Gustave Courbet's famous um, realist uh, realistic painting L'Origine du Monde which was commissioned by Halil Pasha the Ottoman ambassador to Paris so like Mehmet Rolf there's no way he did not know about this painting and then he echoes the same sentiments in this preface and he warns his female readers he says specifically that he did not write this novel for mothers or like sisters a like classic budget uh, rhetoric that he did not write this for women like proper women the house women or this and that and he says like re if you're going to read after this morning basically read at your own risk and Besimah Hanum reads it so we know women read it and that he she was in Izmir 
So it made all the way to Izmir. Yeah, and then she becomes his wife. So indeed, you know, uh, yeah. it's hard she to know how to... Yeah, she divorces them soon, but yeah, they, she became his wife. Well, I think what you've opened up for us here is this really um, rich space for talking about sexuality in in Ottoman late Ottoman novels after the after 1908, in which, you know, we've talked about what it matters, the gender of the writer. So the question, the difference between the the French novel, uh, Violette, about Violette, that is um, the story of Violette that is written by a woman and how it is translated by a man into an Ottoman context. We've talked about the possible gender of readers, um, the fact that, you know, these, at least in Mehmed Raouf's case, there is evidence that women read, although he warned them to do so at their own risk. And we've also talked, I think, about the the sort of what it matters, the way that, that female protagonists are portrayed in these stories um, and sort of how the different ways that female sexuality um, both heterosexuality and same-sex practices among women were de- were depicted. Um, and I think what this, this shows us is that there's a much wider variety of ways of thinking about sex in the late Ottoman Empire than, than I had certainly thought of or imagined. So I wondered if we could close today by just asking you to sort of sum up what you think looking at sexuality can tell us about this moment in late Ottoman, early Republican history in, in, in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey? First of all, we can say that compared to early modern or pre-modern text on sexuality, the late 19th, early 20th century, early 20th century erotic texts, or the way they call them, müstehcen, like obscene literature, it's very timid compared to the pre-modern or early modern ones. I mean, there's the idea of sexuality there, but sexuality is not there. Like, look, reading them from today's perspective, we would hardly name them as erotic. I mean, the, there's also the question of what is erotic, what's pornographic, right? And the, usually the idea is if a text is suggestive, of a sexual intercourse or sexuality, it is erotic. Like it's buried in the language, more elusive, more ornate language, whereas aim of pornography is sexual arousal. So these texts are not pornographic at all, and they they are they would be hardly considered erotic now. So and also we see a different the big difference, a big change between um, pre-modern and early modern texts and early 20th century. There's as we talked about heteronormativity. It's all about heterosexuality. And if there is any homosexual love, it's between women and women, and it is to give men a chance to do voyeurism. Again, to feed into male fantasy, nothing about uh, female emancipation or completely taking men out of the picture. But what we have is adultery that is punished, the premarital sex that's punished or so, until thousand and one kisses series these are the most common themes that have been published uh, published and punished at the same time yeah so what we have is the kind of moment where you know it's a kind of moment of remaking for the ottoman empire after 1908 right in this language of freedom or hurriet but it's also in this what we see through the study of erotica is that there's a kind of a moralizing dimension i mean there's a there's a discussion in the literary scene about what are the limits actually of this new freedom of this new hurriyet and that actually you know then a more masculinist 
sexual order is being like aggressively promoted in these novels that are that we might otherwise consider to be transgressive. So I think that's really interesting. That's correct. And in earlier Ottoman novels, the first Ottoman novels, that is Tanzimat novels, the women, there would be this loose woman character, quote unquote, like the famous one being Mahpeker in Nami Kemal's Intibah, Awakening. And these female characters were also punished at the end of the novels. They either die or they commit suicide, but they're they're severely punished at the end of novels. So come early 20th century, nothing has changed. Maybe the content or the, the frame of the novels have changed, but the ones who are punished for sexual, asking for sexual emancipation or they're following their desires are still the women with the exception of the eunuch in one of the novels. Mm-hmm. Right, until the 1920s. Yes. Yeah, so maybe we could just end by by asking for an example of where we end up in the 1920s. What are the what are the differences between these um, these novellas in A Thousand and One Nights and the earlier kind of moralizing, punitive uh, erotica of, say, Mehmet Raouf? For example, in one of these uh, one thousand and one kisses stories called Mulakat Saatine Intizaren, like close to the hour of rendezvous, perhaps. Uh, we follow a very excited Jimil waiting for his rendezvous with Nazlı. He decides to stroll around to kill time because he's so excited. But during his outing, he sees two women friends of him. On, of course, it, this is in Beyoğlu. He decides, uh, sorry, one thing leads to another, as usually happens in these novels, and he ends up having sex with both of these women which takes away from his strength. And come the rendezvous time, he fails to impress Nazlı. She is underwhelmed, upset, and disappointed with Jamil's performance. She storms out of the bed and calls a very apologetic Jamil. She says, man with a problem like this should never invite ladies to his apartment. <laughs> so, like, references to male sexual performance as a topic of criticism, scrutiny, and a cru- was a crucial aspect of men come up several times in these novels. And, again, the narrators judge the readers they say oh what are you surprised but this is the new woman now if you this is new new wave of life and new woman and if you cannot get used to this you should just leave or not you should just not live anymore in these in these times so it ends in a very optimistic, very promising note for women but in the early Republican era literature can we say this freedom for women continued it's hard to answer well i think that's a great uh, a great note to end on and and perhaps we will have to we'll have to follow up with future work about the early republican period and i i hope to see many more studies of ottoman and early republican erotica that we can feature on the podcast or yeshil cham cinema of yeah, the erotic absolutely. era absolutely so perhaps we can institute this as an ongoing um sort of field of discussion on the podcast. But I just want to thank you so much for, for joining us today, Borju. Thank oh, you. My pleasure. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to find out more, as always, we'll be posting a bibliography on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. And you can also join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 30,000 listeners and stay tuned for more episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. <laughs>